Welcome to Ars Technica Live. Every month, we bring you an informal conversation with a thinker from the frontier of technology, science, and culture. We record each episode before a live audience. There's only one rule, no sound bites. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm the tech culture editor at Ars Technica. I'm Joe Mullen. I'm the tech policy editor at Ars. And uh, we are super lucky to have Lindsay Dillon here with us today. She is a professor at UC Santa Cruz. Yeah, she's freaking awesome. Um, <laughs> her work looks at the intersection of race and environmental activism. And she's done a lot of work in this area and we're gonna ask her a lot about it today. She's also one of the founders of a super interesting new group that's been doing a lot of work around the EPA that's called the Environmental Data and Governance Initiative, also known as EDGY. So Lindsay, I wanted to get started just by asking you about what is EDGY and how it got started and what was, why did you guys start it and when and what are you doing now? Okay, so EDGY, which a small fact, I came up with the name, I have to say that. <laughs> awesome. EDGY is, is very new, it's, it's an it's a organization and process that came together through a lot of just volunteer labor in the week after Trump was elected. So a colleague of mine, um, this amazing academic and activist Nick Shapiro, sent out this email to about 12 colleagues around the country, probably a couple of days after Trump was elected. We're all academics. We're, most of us study environmental issues around environmental justice, anti-toxics activism, um, race, race, race and racism. But Nick's email was really simple. He said, what's going to happen to the EPA? Um, and I think this moment in time was when a lot of groups, not just environmental groups, but it, the, history was open and it was, you know, like, I don't like the word unprecedented, but I keep coming back to it. And so we were concerned about the EPA being defunded. We were concerned about deregulation and we were concerned about data. We formed these three working groups and eventually we had a name and eventually we had a generosity campaign. We raised money. We've had funders now. We got this, all this press um, and we just put out a report a couple of days ago. That's part of like an, a larger report of the first hundred days of the Trump administrations and his effects on environmental policy. So it's been a really wild ride. Um, it's also a moment for us of like, reflection of the past six or seven months and where we want to move forward and what we want to leave behind. So one of the projects that EDGY did was a data rescue program. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what you learned from it? And yes. And what, and what is data rescue? That's a good question. So data rescue started um, with a colleague in Canada, and this is actually really important. Um, Michelle Murphy and Matt Price and a couple others uh, who are part of EDGY from the beginning in, in Toronto um, in December of 2016, right, so before Trump was inaugurated, had this, they called it a guerrilla hackathon at University of Toronto. And they were just at that moment trying to um, seed URLs to the Internet Archives end of term project. We teamed up with this group at University of Pennsylvania and it turns out that we got a lot of press at that event. Um, and a lot of other groups around the country were really interested in preserving data sets and um, EPA web pages, like around climate change, around um, toxins, the toxic release inventory. 
we were concerned um, that they would be disappeared, not, not necessarily destroyed, but taken offline. And the reason that it's important that it started in Canada was that, um, as many Americans do not know, for the past eight years, Canada has been uh, led by this prime minister named Stephen Harper. And his administration completely defunded all kinds of environmental research. Um, they did not allow a lot of scientists to speak publicly. Um, so they were kind of muzzled. Um, and environmental data sets and information were taken offline. So coming out of that experience and to Justin Trudeau, these Canadians were like, we can't let this happen again. Um, so we're going to be proactive about it. And what, what were some of the stuff you did to get proactive about it? So I have to do two things. One was to nominate URLs, uh, websites, to the Internet Archives End of Term Project, which has started in 2008. Um, when administrations change, websites change, and that's really normal. The Internet Archive decided to document um, those, uh, really focus on government websites in that moment of transition, because a lot of information would just disappear, right? Um, so we decided that we were really going to, at first, just make sure that Internet Archive captured all of the EPA's websites. Um, and then it grew because it's not just the EPA that has environmental data and information. It's NOAA, it's NASA, it's science. Um, it's all kinds of federal environmental agencies. But the Internet Archive, even though it has this web crawler that captures kind of snapshots of websites, it can't get really dynamic data sets. So when you go to a data set and there's like multiple PDFs or it's a dynamic map, the Internet Archive can't really get that. So we decided we would develop this process where we could download the data um, wrap it in metadata and put it into this kind of process where it would eventually be archived. And the most important thing to us was not just that you had this, like, quote-unquote, raw data, but that it was publicly accessible. That was our mission from the, from the start, was that these data sets needed to be online, they needed to be publicly accessible. Um, so it, that process of actually archiving it is still like ongoing and people are still working um, at that, but we were really successful in, you know, getting, generating a lot of media attention. 30 data rescue events happened across the country and in Canada. Um, yeah, and as, and you know, as a sociologist, the last thing I'll say is that I think it really, you know, Think about these events happening at the same moment as the March for Science, the Women's March, all of these alt-NOAA, alt-NASA kind of social media accounts popping up. I mean, this is a moment of concern, and I situate, you know, as a sociologist, I situate those data rescue events in that moment. What can we do? Um, and I think that the, the popularity is such an indication, really hopeful, positive, optimistic indication of the capacities of the U.S. public to to come together and do something. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the data that you're most worried about seeing disappear from the EPA website? So I will tell you personally what I was most interested in and what actually happened. <laughs> so I, as an academic, work, um, my interests are around environment and race and environmental justice, social movements in San Francisco and Baby Hunters Point. And most environmental justice groups really rely on federal environmental data to say, look, there are these many brownfields, there are these many industries, there's this bad air quality, and that data helps them make claims to the state about racial disparities and environmental health. 
And this one group, Green Action, has put together this amazing report called the Toxics Inventory of Baby Hunters Point. It relies entirely on federal environmental data. So if that data, it's not just that it might be disappeared, but that it would be taken offline and kept in a physical repository. So technically it's still public, but it's really hard for people working one, two jobs, you know, struggling um, in communities that are marginalized to go to that physical place and gather that data. And so having it online is really, it's an activist tool, right? Public accessibility of data and not just environmental data like census data, right? Um, so we were really concerned that, I was really concerned that this kind of data about toxics, geospatial data about racial inequalities would go offline. And so I did see, I did see some of that happen. Right, you saw some of it go offline? Or? Yeah, so I was, I was writing a book chapter and I went to Google a report that I refer to a lot about a, a fire at Hunter's Point, a, a, at a radioactive landfill mm -hmm. and the health uh, consultation by the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. And I Googled it, I just needed the citation and it was gone. And it took me like 20 minutes to find the reference and I had to email the agency and they actually sent me the report. So it was available, but what I realized is that if I was just interested in the topic, I would not have been able to find it. Right. And so that's a really clear indication to me of information that it's just, it disappears and it's a, it's a justice, it's an equity issue. Yeah, and it's tantamount to deletion. I've always felt like there's a couple weird agencies when I've done legal reporting that still have asked for things to be faxed to them for me. And I'm at some, some level, I feel like if you're asking me to fax you at this point, like you're really trying to hide the information. I mean, <laughs> you're making you, it really hard. <laughs> you know I don't have a fax machine in my office, right? Like this is just something you don't want to give out. And well, they, you must use FOIA a lot, and that they make it yeah. really hard for you. You have to ask the specific question, and if you don't, yeah. then yeah. Yeah. So I didn't have to fax them, but yeah, that was I did the have New to know York, exactly what I wanted. If you at least a couple of years ago, if you wanted to find out the disciplinary history of a lawyer in New York, they just insisted on a fax. Absolutely had to get a fax. But um, <laughs> so I'm actually interested in uh, speaking of the law. Did you find anything out as you were doing this project about? the legalities of that. I mean, can a new administration come in and just decide, well, we don't like this website, we don't like this data being out there. Is there any law or policy to stop them from engaging in that kind of disappearing act or lack of access act? Yes, so this is such a great important question and I think all of us in this room really need to know what our rights and are and aren't, right? Um, and what we can expect and, and actually demand. So, and in this I have to credit this really wonderful reporter um, whose name is Chrissy Elliott, who wrote a piece in California Magazine. And she had interviewed this for me, but she did a lot of great reporting on this. So thank you, Chrissy Elliott. We saw two categories of data loss. One is around, you know, d databases. And I'm gonna come back to the point about the laws surrounding taking databases or changing them. But one of the things that EDGY has done, in addition to these data rescue projects, is these more granular, granular website monitoring of just word changes. And this might seem innocuous, but you know, when the Trump administration takes climate change down or you know, takes um, climate change pages down from the you know, energy.gov's website for kids, 
then that's the removal of, it's maybe not data sets, but information, right? Yeah. And so we've seen and documented that um, quite a bit. Maybe give us a so, couple examples that you found shocking or problematic. Well, I mean, I, I'll go back to that website of, you know, the energy.gov's website yeah. on climate change for kids and just, just taking them down that information. Uh -huh. um, there's been, you know, climate change taken down from the State Department website. There was an Obama rule on o the oil and gas industry in terms of, like, methane production that was taken down off the Bureau, Bureau of Land Management website. And we think that that was... It wasn't just taking down information. It was the administration sort of anticipating that that rule would be reversed. Um, so you, you see these subtle sort of rhetorical shifts. In terms of data, there is... Okay, so there is the... Um, Paper Reduction Act, I think, of 1980, that was supposed to make uh, the accumulation of data in government agencies less burdensome. Um, so one of the provisions of this act is that federal agencies are required to give 60 days notice if they alter, destroy, you know, you can't really say take down information because this, this act was last updated in 1995 and the, quote, the internet was not really like... <laughs> yeah. So technically there's a law around taking, removing data sets from public access and they require 60 days notice. Um, there's also the Federal Records Act of 1950. This um, author of a book and executive director of, I think it's openthegovernment.org, her name is Patrice uh, McDermott, has written about this and basically says, these laws exist, but there's really no legal precedent. They don't have a lot of teeth. No one's ever been held accountable to them. Um, and so you have seen um, this kind of thing happening. Um, one of the things that we saw happening, if, if any of you know about it, is that the USDA took down databases on animal welfare, so having to do with inspections. But there was such public outcry that these databases have started to go back online. Um, so is it a situation where there kind of is recourse, but in order to make sure the agencies follow those rules, someone's got to speak up? We have yeah. to know about it. Yeah. And, you know, if data rescue, you know, quote-unquote saves environmental data sets, that's wonderful. But I think one of the just really powerful effects was raising awareness around the importance of data in all of our everyday lives, the importance of data for political activism, um, and then the vulnerability of data, right? And the laws that we can call on to protect that public accessibility. So I'm proud of that aspect of what we did. Do you know of any databases that actually have been taken down? You said that you were looking for a paper that was gone. Have you guys seen anything like that where it's not just taking down the word climate change, but just removing information about it? So in my research, I've seen, um, they weren't data sets, but health consultations that had information that were, um, I had to email the agency. I didn't know exactly what I was looking for and email right. the agency. So it was, it was accessible, but um, not the way that fosters a, like, a very robust democratic public. With things that we see that suggest data sets have been deleted, which I'll speak to in a second, it requires a really healthy kind of critical mindset that doesn't automatically go to this suspicion or kind of conspiracy thinking. So one of our researchers flagged that if you go to um, 
the EPA and look at websites that are tagged climate change. Um, we've actually seen through the Internet Archive this um, comparison of screenshots from November 2016 to maybe a month ago. And if you like, Google these data sets that are tagged climate change, you see, you see this reduction of about 100. Okay, so we have this suggestion that something has changed. But, you know, you could go to the easy answer that they've just been deleted. Um, for me, for all of us in EDGY, it raises more questions that have, you know, actual answers. Have they been recategorized? Where have they gone? Are, are they still there and where are they? So there's a lot there that can feed sort of conspiracy thinking, um, which we really want to guard against as academics. Right. I, I'm curious if you have reached out to agencies that have maybe, whether they removed information or just changed it in seemingly odd ways. I'm wondering if you've reached out to some of them and if so, what kind of response you're getting. Are people answering the phone about their changed websites? I mean, so one of the working groups that EDGY started, you know, before Trump was officially inaugurated was an interview project with EPA and OSHA employees. And it was something that we kept um, very confidential, um, people's identities. Um, people at that time expressed a lot of fears. But no, I mean, no, none of the agencies has really given us a comment on, on so that. Yeah. I wanted to ask, um, because we've talked about uh, ways that um, data gets suppressed because they change the terminology, so they, they no longer use the term climate change. We've also talked about uh, data being taken offline, even though it's technically still there. Um, but there's now this act, uh, this piece of legislation called the Honest Act. Yeah, it's my favorite. Which uh, best, of great best name ever? Yeah, off. the Honest yeah. Act, which is intended to limit the kinds of scientific information that the EPA can use in any of its recommendations or protections. Can you talk about that? Because that also sounds like it kind of fits into the category of limiting data in a new, sneaky way. Yeah, thank you for asking that. So Union of Concerned Scientists has labeled this the Dishonest Act. <laughs> Honest is an acronym, and I'm probably going to but butcher this, but it used to be called the Secret Science Act. So I'm not even going to try to explain it, but it is an acronym. It passed in the House a couple weeks, uh, months ago. The Honest Act um, limits the kind of data that the EPA can use in making decisions about an environmental protection, like regulating a certain industry or, you know, having to do with toxins in the water or the air. Um, so it, it's, it says kind of in simple language that the data used needs to be transparent and reproducible. So this sounds like a really great thing, right? But let's think about what this actually means. Reproducible. A lot of uh, regulations on radiation rely on experiments that should not in any ethical universe be reproduced. So the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, like accidents around nuclear waste sites. Um, really long-term studies like, um, that just can't be reproduced because of time and money. So all of those studies are, are essentially not reproducible. So that would be a category of research that the EPA would be not allowed to rely on in making its uh, protection. So right? they wouldn't be able to use studies of like Chernobyl because we can't reproduce that. Potentially, yeah. 
And then transparent, um, what they're targeting there is um, data that includes like private health data, so epi epidemiological studies. These are anonymized, like that um, information doesn't point you to particular people anyway. Um, but it, it basically, it's an act that's been um, um, introduced into Congress for the last three to four years. It was always rejected. It was passed by the House a couple months ago. It's on the Senate floor now. And I think that, you know, it shows us that this is a really serious time. It's a political opportunity for a lot of legislation that has not been passed before to actually go through. Um, so a lot of the acts that we're actually concerned about having to do with the environment or data haven't crafted before. They come from the Heritage Foundation or, you know, they've been someone, on someone's dream list. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, and now we see them having kind of a political opportunity to be a reality. Yeah. yeah. I, was, I was just having a conversation today with someone in a totally different field who was, uh, yeah, basically it was about patent reform, but it was someone was like, well, we're not really, we don't see a lot of progress on the horizon, but suddenly these forces that no one thought would get anywhere six months ago are interested in spending five million bucks because they think in the new political environment they might be able to make some progress. I would go to the Heritage Foundation website and read their recommendations. Yeah, actually, so I'll admit I hadn't heard of the Honest Act until today, um, and I did a little searching around on it, and it does seem like the supporters of this act are portraying it as, well, you might not know this, but there's actually, these aren't good studies, and we need to really get some of these bad studies out of the uh, system. Right, so the studies that, that are bad are peer-reviewed science. Right. You know, um, and so what, one of the things that EDGY did was it went through this act and it looked at really important public protections around regulation, around um, radiation, sorry, first responders, you know, air quality. And we did the, we read through these, we looked at the kinds of studies that they relied on and we found really important public protections that may not have actually been passed because they relied on the categories of studies that could have been eliminated under this act. Um, so if you want to go to our website, we did a white paper and we had a, a letter that was introduced into the House of, um, to the uh, Congress floor as public record, um, but it, the bill still passed, so. So I wanted to um, make sure that we got to talk about the uh, study that you guys just released on the EPA, uh, which is up on the EDGY website. So if you want to check it out, it's there. And um, this is a study which relied on these interviews that you mentioned earlier. You did dozens of interviews with people previously at the EPA, but also currently there. So I'm just curious what... What did they tell you about, um, you know, what's happening at the EPA, the magnitude of the changes that might happen? I mean, do, does it seem like an apocalypse to them? Like, what's the, what's going on? We have interviewed, I think, 60 or over 60 um, EPA and OSHA current and former employees. So I've been doing interviews in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area colleagues in Washington, D.C., Boston, Colorado, a couple other places. So it's a, it's a group effort. It's a group project. We just released a, a really long report that draws on the interview data and situates Trump's kind of effects on the EPA in historical context. So we, a lot of our, 
I met some really great people. I mean, some folks that were retired that had been in the EPA since 1970. You know, they were there from the very beginning, and it was great. You know, they're, interviewing people is like the, one of the pleasures of my job, especially people asking them questions like, what are you proud of what you did? Like, what, what were the accomplishments of your job? And a lot of the old, older folks remember this period in the early Reagan administration when his administrator, like, slashed the EPA budget, and um, eventually, you know, it turned out that there was this whole corruption scandal in the EPA at the time, which brought down that, that moment in history. Um, but we talk about how Reagan and how his administration actually basically, like, defunded the EPA at the time as a historical precedent. What can we learn from the past? What have our interviewees told us that we can learn from the past about how people resisted this and organized against it? Um, and then we also talk about the Canadian period um, and what happened under Stephen Harper, which a journalist told me recently that people don't care about Canada, but you really should because this is, this is how things can be defunded in the era of the internet, in the era, the era of a consensus on climate change. So the Canadian case, I think, is the most instructive. And then we also... You know, our interviews span like maybe December until a, a couple or more recently. So people, you know, the, the Trump budget hasn't been passed yet. We don't have a lot of data except that interview data that people are extremely worried. Um, one of the things that we've heard is there's a lot of self-policing and fear and worry. Um, recently, Trump's budget, um, his May budget has shown like cuts a total elimination of the Office of Environmental Justice. I mean, things that our interviewees have worked their whole lives to, to promote. Um, so the morale is very low. So one of the things about the EPA that I feel like people don't realize is they were started by a Republican administration, it was started yeah. by Nixon. But also, um, there's a lot of regulation and protection that came from the EPA that we kind of take for granted that you said that you kind of learned about as you were interviewing people. So what are a couple things that people might not know came from the EPA that are protections we kind of know as just normal life? Well, when the EPA started, I mean, there were, like, the Cuyahoga River was burning. There was, like, Love Canal. You know, there are these upwellings of toxic waste sites. Um, Wait, there was actually a river that was actually burning, like, physically burning? The, Ohio, the Cuyahoga River, yeah. Yeah, it's just all the industrial stuff, <laughs> effluent, yeah. It, it burned, it has burned like four or five times in the 20th century, but most recently, if folks remember the Santa, uh, Santa Barbara oil spill, I mean, so the EPA was started by Richard Nixon, a Republican president, and for at least the first 10 years, it had bipartisan support, you know, the LA smog, people could visibly see and smell and becoming more knowledgeable through the environmental movement of the 60s of the, you know, environmental health. It was a popular agency um, for Republicans and Democrats alike. Um, and so if you think about your air, your air quality, your water quality, um, the lack of radiation in your water, um, the fact that an industrial uh, site in your neighborhood might actually get cleaned up and the government would... Um, provide money to do that and hold industries to high standards for that cleanup. Those are all uh, public protections that the EPA has invested in. Um, and 
yeah, I think all of us owe, it, to some small or large degree, our health to the EPA, right? I'm actually curious if you, it seems like this is one of, I would say, several issues that have been really become incredibly partisan issues uh, over the you know, recent decades that you wouldn't have necessarily thought of them being that way. And in fact, they weren't that way, you know, in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And I was wondering if in the course of all the interviews it did with EPA and OSHA, and by the way, I just want to, because it's not that common, oh, OSHA is the Workplace Safety yes. uh, Agency. Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Great. But I'm wondering if from all your interviews with those agency employees, if you had any sense from talking to them of historical change over time and how this kind of uh, took place. We got to, and this wasn't just Trump, right? I mean, before Trump, we had drill, baby, drill, and it, it became a partisan issue. So what's interesting, and most of the EPA employees um, that we interviewed is that, yeah, there was um, less attention to climate change and environmental justice, for example, under Bush too. But for the most part, their jobs have been more or less the, the same. Um, with the exception of that Reagan moment, um, under Republican EPA administrators. That's like the head of the EPA. They're, they're EPA uh, called it administrators. And people even favored, some people favored Republican administrators because they were better like, at running an organization. There's one other historical moment that feels like a rupture, and that's the 1994 um, kind of uh, Newt Gingrich contract with America period. So those midterm elections... And that moment, it wasn't, it wasn't that people singled out Republican presidents so much as affecting their job. The, kind, the ways that they were able to do their job, the ways that they were able to do the work that they thought they were, that they cared about when they came into the EPA, um, it's, it's really Reagan and it's that 1994 period where the Republicans take over Congress. And it's congressional Republicans that have for, for most people's kind of understanding of their work has really sort of limited because of the way that they've controlled budgets. I think in terms of historical moments, it's, it's 1994 and it's the early 80s that people really mark. If you want to ask a question, please come up here and talk into the mic. Okay, so the question is, um, what kinds of uh, events and actions does EDGY have planned next to sustain uh, uh, involvement of the tech community? So if you're interested in this, please go to our website. Um, so we have a less visible, because it's not this kind of dramatic, spectacular, we are saving data event, uh, a working group called the Archivers Working Group. Um, and they have stand-up meetings every week um, and a GitHub website and just, I, ca I cannot stress enough, I mean, so, I'm a first-year professor at UC Santa Cruz. My own job is incredibly stressful. On top of that, I've been on the steering committee and part of different working groups for EDGY, and I pour so much time into it, and it is such a pleasure because the political moment is really... I'm going to get to your, answer your question. <laughs> the political moment seems so dire, and the community that, that is EDGY that we've formed that is also the archivers working group, are such a, a wonderful, positive, hardworking, smart, just lovely group of people. Some who I have never met in person because we work primarily online. I'm one of the few people on the West Coast. Um, most, most of our meetings are East Coast time. Um, so, I mean, that's just 
sustained all the work that all of us have put into it, which is all volunteer. So we have an archivers working group, um, and they have, um, it's mainly folks out of Toronto that have really led it. Um, in terms of data rescue, we don't have events anymore. We're moving towards more machine-based learning and broadening the scope of what we're archiving. We're also trying to support our website monitoring project and expand the scope of the websites we monitor on that granular kind of day-to-day -day basis and also moving towards writing code and tools and developing like the resiliency, the infrastructure, um, and raising really important questions about data justice. So is yeah. there uh, a place that people can go, the Edgy website? Please go to the Edgy website. It has contact info for okay. someone who'd want to get involved. And yes, people can please. get involved. And go to our working groups. There's an archivers working group if you're in the tech community. Um, it's a really open, inclusive community. There's a, a really, like, feminist-inspired code of conduct. Um, so, yeah, we're an inclusive, excited community. So if there is no data, then the truth is whatever someone says it is, right? So that's the, alter the alternative truth that Trump seems to like so much. So what, what assurance do you have the data is not just being removed from the website or renamed, but how do you know it's not being destroyed? Well, there are laws and sort of institutional processes against destroying data. But if you don't mind, I, I really want to pick up on what you said about, you know, alt facts and the trust, right, in data. And so that's, I mean, one thing about government data is that um, it, it should be something that we should trust, right? Um, as a sort of side chat, that raises questions for me about the prior politics of how data is collected, who collects it, what isn't being collected, right? There's all kinds of kind of prior questions that go into those, those numbers that we see that represent like fact or truth, right? Um, so there's always a kind of politics and data to begin with. Um, I think that the, the, and thank you for your question. I think the thing to be more concerned about is not so much the data sets and the numbers, but the, the rhetoric and the, the kinds of ways that data is communicated. Um, and one of the things that we saw in Canada was the muzzling of scientists. They couldn't speak freely with journalists. And this even started to happen initially with Trump, who said, you know, um, to the USDA and the EPA that they couldn't, like, communicate via, like, Twitter websites, or Twitter, right? So that's when we see alt-EPA, kind of, in alt-national parks. So I think it, I think it, um, I'm more concerned about communication of science, of the consensus on climate change, of, you know, the connection between race and environmental and toxins. Um, so it's that communication of, sci of long-standing scientific projects and consensuses that I'm concerned about. Um, but that question of alt fact and trust and trust in and the news media and trust in data sets, I think, has been really ruptured. And I don't know how to put that back together. I managed the Wayback Machine at the United Archive. And uh, we archive more than... Uh, thank you. Uh, it's, 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 it's a huge team in San Francisco that keeps it all running. We archive more than a billion URLs a week. And, uh, and one of the things I've been focusing on is uh, at-risk information around the world. Because, you know, the information in our, our U.S. government websites was, frankly, fairly well archived by many, many folks, and you, know, you and, and others. But, you know, the newspapers and the, and the NGOs and, and the 
the, the various the academics around the world that, that publish widely. The average life expectancy of a web page is 92 days before it's changed or deleted. Uh, governments take down newspapers in Turkey. Dozens of uh, media organizations were shut down uh, after the uh, coup there. Uh, we have corrected more than 2 million uh, links in Wikipedia alone that have gone bad because of link rot. I mean, the, the web itself being this expression where human beings are now uh, sharing what we are creating and learning uh, is, is rotting away uh, at, a, at a, an increasingly rat rapid pace. So I'm just wondering, you know, more broadly, not just, uh, you know, U.S. government information, but more broadly, uh, all of this digital information that we're creating around the world, what your thoughts are on how we can better protect it. You? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, our data rescue project was, you know, based on, on, on your, the model of your organization. I mean, we are trying to, so the, what the Wayback Machine does really well is captures sort of the upper, kind of the, the, the lead websites and a couple links in, so it, it doesn't always get deep down into a website, and so we were trying to fill out those deeper links in the EPA to, initially, and then kind of flesh out other environmental uh, federal agency websites. One of our concerns is that data and website changes should not be vulnerable to any administration. So when you raise the question about Turkey and other countries, like my mind just kind of like explodes. I don't really know what to say. Um, but having um, you know, well-funded independent organizations like the Internet Archive that collaborate with you know, government agencies like the National Archives, as you do, your organization provides the best model I can think about. Yeah. And, you know, it reminds me of, uh, I think some of the, you know, some of the talk about Trump's, you know, fascism stuff's a little uh, hysterical, but when we saw the inauguration count moment, you really feel like there's some elements of the administration where they're kind of, people are being compelled to lose a grip on facts. And one of the podcasts I listened to was, you know, said after that inauguration numbers moment, you know, people don't realize there's someone in the government in charge of what the price of milk will be in Wisconsin next month. So it seems mundane, but if people start making it up and make a new reality, I mean, I think that's a real fear and the, it's archives that will save us. Yeah, that it, is what data rescue is about. Yeah, I mean, it is archives, but those... That information, those those facts, what we see as hard facts, can be there. But you know, there's a there's a journalist at UC Santa Cruz where I work, um, Sally Lerman. I'm getting her name. And so, I, Kate, maybe you can remember her project. But it's all about trust in journalism, and and the rupture of that. So, I mean, as we've seen with the kind of rise of quote unquote alt facts, is that those yeah. facts, that those archives, that data that we trust can be there. But there is a disturbingly large number of the, the U.S. public that doesn't trust that and trusts, you know, another source. So um, that's a, yeah, like you said, a problem of civil society. Probably can't solve that one tonight, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned the intersection between uh, environmental toxins and race, and I would love to hear you talk more about that. Was Flint, Michigan just this one isolated incident, or are there, does the data show a more systematic correlation? Yeah. Thank you. Flint is not an isolated incident. I think one of the things that is unique about Flint is that you have that smoking gun. Like you have that, those sort of, that sort of clear 
um, visible, um, uh, legally visible, like kind of corruption. But you see decaying infrastructure in marginalized communities. It's across the country. It's what scholars might call uh, structural, structural, a structural form of racism. It's systematic. Um, it can be mapped. Um, and it's in Oakland, it's in Richmond, it's in um, San Francisco and Baby Hunters Point where my research is focused. Um, and it's multiple intersecting forms of neglect and margin, marginalization and, um, and racism. And it has to do with, you know, decaying pipes. Um, it has to do with um, zoning regulations that allow industries to locate next to like homes, right? Um, and so my work in environmental justice, you know, environmental justice activists, are, they're concerned about trees, but that's not their focus. They define the environment as the place where we live, work, and play. And so environmental justice is about advocating for healthy and safety places where we live, where we our workplaces, and where we play. And so that has everything to do with, are there parks where people can, can go exercise or play? Um, what is the air they're breathing? What is the nature of their housing stock? All kinds of questions about environmental conditions that re contribute to and reinforce racial inequalities. Are there any specific examples of that happening right now here in the Bay Area? I know you've been studying this area. Are there any ongoing or recent environmental racist issues? <laughs> well, there was a really wonderful, um, you know, successful campaign here in Oakland last year to uh, stop the, um, the movement of coal through the Oakland port. Um, the Oakland port is, yeah. <laughs> so Oakland's a really amazing place. I mean, it obviously has a long history of anti-racist organizing, <laughs> like the Black Panther Party, but um, you know, environmental justice movements here in East and West Oakland um, have organized around um, like idling diesel trucks on the port and um, toxic sites. And it's a really inspiring community that's here. Um, and the really great group Earth Justice helped out in stopping that, um, that movement of coal. The problem is, is that, you know, unless we address coal extraction and our um, the kinds of, the kind of energy our current economy is based on, that coal is just going to go somewhere else, right? So um, we have to think, scale out our thinking too. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good place to end with like a successful campaign um, here in Oakland. Um, thank you guys for coming Thanks out. For